welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. One evening earlier this week, I don't remember the night, doesn't matter, but on one night earlier this week, I got a text from Ashley Hansen. Most of you probably know Ashley and Ted. Yes, she warrants, they warrant an applause. Ashley and Ted, their six-year-old is Lucas, their four-year-old is Samuel. Now, a little bit of context so you understand this text message I got from Ashley. Lauren is the woman who does childcare uh, here on the church campus during the week and often watches Lucas and Samuel during the day while Ashley is working here. Gus, for those of you who don't know, is my beloved two-year-old yellow lab. So this was the text I got from Ashley the other night this week. She wrote, this evening when Ted was tucking Samuel into bed, Samuel was naming all the people who love him. Shortly after mentioning Lauren and a couple other people, he said, and this is a quote, who's the guy that has Gus? (laughs) And Ted replied, oh, Mr. Mike. And Samuel said, yeah, Mr. Mike, he loves me too. And this was just one of those perfectly ordinary down-to-earth, absolutely indescribable good experiences of life. The night I read that text, instantly it cut through the challenges that I had dealt with during the day and at least temporarily quieted down the disappointments and the concerns of work, personal life, church stuff, COVID, and all the rest of it might say it this way, little Samuel brought Advent hope right into my soul through a simple, ordinary comment. And it was a little gift from God, maybe even a big gift from God. You know, it's not often we hear someone say something like this. Well, I went to see my heart specialist today. She is the 107th best heart doctor in Northern California. Nobody says that. It's always the best or the top five or whatever. It's not often a parent says, you know, my daughter is the 11th best player on her soccer team. We don't generally say those things, nor do we pray, God, help me to have an ordinary job, an ordinary family, and a few ordinary friends. See, we're rarely content with the ordinary. We live in a culture fixated with fame, intoxicated with shallow definitions of success and terrified of failure. So the ordinary is rarely sufficient or soul satisfying to us. And so it is wonderfully ironic and eye-catching that the Advent story, God's story of his arrival into this world is jam-packed with the ordinary. Mary was a teenager. She was engaged to a carpenter named Joseph. She turns up pregnant before the wedding. They lived in an unremarkable town called Nazareth, an ordinary government thing called a census forced them to leave Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not exactly a thriving metropolis that everybody wanted to go to. Shepherds were not exactly the movers and shakers of the first century world. They were ordinary people. They were everyday laborers. And of all the places for God to choose to be born, 
all the ways in which he could have made his entrance known, he chose to be born in a stable, or maybe it was some kind of cave, because all the hotels were full. So feel this with me for just a second. The story is full of ordinary life stuff. One of the most extraordinary things about the Advent story is how it unfolds in and through such ordinary people, places, and things. God comes in the midst of ordinary life stuff. He arrives in the midst of ordinary life stuff. He condescends, if you will, so that he becomes part of ordinary life stuff. And then out of that, this incredible and miraculous begins to unfold. So the first advent foreshadows every advent. The first coming of Jesus foreshadows all the times that he comes into our lives. The first advent shows who God is, what God is like, and how he accomplishes his purposes through such surprisingly ordinary people, places, and things. His presence and his power transform the ordinary into the extraordinary. So, from the story, older women who cannot conceive children have children. A teenage maiden, uh, nobody, becomes the mother of God. A small and forgettable town becomes the birthplace of the divine. Shepherds become the first heralds of God's good news. God seems to choose the ordinary to reveal his extraordinary so we realize that he is behind it all. He picks these ways of coming to us and showing up that we would never in a million years suspect. We would never guess. We would never say, well, I bet you the God of the universe is going to do it that way. We would never guess that he comes in the most ordinary ways to reveal how extraordinary he is. And as we stay with this for a second, throughout the Advent story, at different places, we find the ordinary and very human emotion of fear. It's part of the ordinary of the story. People are afraid. So we see people getting startled by these visits from angels. We see people gripped with fear. We see people terrified, is the word sometimes used, by their encounter with the divine. And as the drama unfolds, we hear angels saying to human beings more than once, do not be afraid. In fact, part of the Advent message is, do not be afraid. Kind of fitting, given the world in which we're now living. In our Advent reading and in what I used for the scripture reading, the shepherds were big time afraid. Megaphobic. It's really an interesting phrase. It's the actual Greek phrase that Luke uses. Megaphobic. It's translated terrified. But I like megaphobic better. The angels said to the shepherds, do not be megaphobic. Do not be terrified. No need to be scared. God has come. God is here. God has arrived. And with him, he's brought hope. And so today I want us to think for a few minutes 
about fear on the one hand and hope on the other hand. In 2020, we have been living on the verge of fear, at least some of us have. The fear of COVID, the fear of an economic collapse, the fear of losing a job, or maybe the fear of looking out past what our eyes can see into the future, and it's the fear of the unknown. Maybe it's the fear of death or the fear of, and I'm sure you can insert at least one or two things and fill in the blank. 2020 has been, in some ways, the year of fear. Fear has been our unwanted house guest. We keep trying to evict, but it keeps showing back up and barging through our door. And some in our church and some people in your life are right now living on the verge of fear because something ominous looms on the horizon of their lives. And we all go through these situations in life. We all experience this at one time or another where we're there on the verge of fear because something in front of us is intimidating or it's unknown or it's uncertain or it was unexpected. And we're standing there on the verge of fear because this thing out in front of us is something we can't quite sort out. There are people, some in our church, some in your lives, gripped by worry and by anxiety over the unknown. And they are being pushed and pulled all day long by a barrage of thoughts that are fixated on the bad things that might happen or the bad news they think is coming or the bad situation that has started to unfold. But we say it's Advent. It's Christmas time. It's just a few days away. Why all this stuff? I know it's Christmas and I know it's Advent, but ordinary life stuff doesn't always cooperate with our schedules or our planned celebrations, and we all know this. So here's the point, and it's just a clear statement of the obvious. This world is dangerous. This world can be scary. Things happen in life and in this world, and things don't always resolve the way we want them to or pray they will. And it is tempting to respond to fear by hunkering down and playing it safe or by trying to control the situation, trying to manage the situation. In a scary world, it is tempting to think we are skilled enough or smart enough to weave our way in and around all the danger and remain unscathed by it. It is tempting in this world to allow our minds to become overcrowded with all sorts of plans and strategies and steps designed to avoid all of the potholes and all of the danger in this life. And people do this. They live this way. Their life becomes an exercise in avoiding all the danger so that they can stay free from all the fear. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about COVID here or, or masks or any of that stuff. I address that as clearly as I know how last week. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about life stuff. Talk about things like the fear of being rejected or the fear of being hurt or the fear of being alone, the fear of getting seriously sick or of losing someone we love, 
that kind of stuff that ends up crowding into our minds and pushing our thoughts all over the place. And we start living in a manner where we think we're smart enough or skilled enough to step around all this stuff and avoid the inevitable pain, fear of a job, money, whatever. Here's the thing. God does not want us to live in fear because of who he is, because of his presence with us, because of Advent, his coming. Fear does not get the final word. And I don't mean by this that people of faith are to walk around spouting off trite religious sayings about faith instead of fear or trusting God even when life hurts. I don't mean that. But there is a way to authentically reframe our fear in the light of God's presence and in the light of God's goodness. There's a way to live on the verge of fear without being overrun by the fear. The Advent story, the coming of Jesus, resets us to him. And it resets us to his purposes and to his goodness and to his power and to his presence. And this resetting can actually loosen the grip of fear on our lives. So what is this? This is the practical and down-to-earth journey of living with authentic faith in an authentically dangerous world. That's what we're talking about. It's a cursed world, as the Bible calls it, where rotten things do happen. And Jesus's people, in the midst of all that ordinary hard stuff, are invited <clears throat> and empowered by his spirit to reset and trust his presence and goodness even as we live on the verge of fear. So let's talk about hope-filled rest in the midst of fear. I mentioned earlier, our passage says the shepherds were living out in the fields and they were doing their jobs one night when the angel broke up, an angel broke up their routine and we're told the glory of God's presence lit up the darkness of that night and it says the shepherds were megaphobic terrified, very afraid. They'd never seen anything like this. They had no place to put this. There was no shelf in their life they could set this on. There's no label they could put over it. There's no category where this fit. This was way beyond them and way bigger than them, and they knew it. The angel announced the story of Advent by first saying to them, do not be afraid. That just lands on me in these days we're living in. The Advent story, the announcement of the good news begins with the phrase, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. So hear these words in our situation, in your situation, perhaps in the situation of someone you know. Hear these words, the beginning of the Advent story, do not be afraid. See, the shepherd's fear out in those fields is reset and reframed by the presence of God and by the power of God and by the promise of good that God is bringing forth through Jesus. And this is, in a nutshell, all I'm trying to say today. See, one of the challenges in talking about hope, particularly standing up in a situation like this and talking about hope, one of the challenges is that it can sound so much like hype. I mean, there's just one letter difference between the two words. And it's easy to talk about hope in a way that feels a lot like hype. It's easy to talk about hope in a way that feels flimsy and feels fake. 
It's this kind of slap on a Bible verse to ease the pain kind of strategy that sounds good, but often leaves people with a bad taste in their mouth. It is speaking about hope like it's a platitude or like it's a slogan on some trinket somewhere instead of an attribute of our character that's being slowly and gradually cultivated by the Holy Spirit of God. You see, authentic hope in God literally resets our real fears and enables us to find deep rest in the midst of our real fears. As I was working on this, one of the things that flashed into my mind were the handful of examples of people in my life whom I have watched walk into incredibly scary situations, authentically difficult and scary situations, but because they have hope cultivated within them, they've walked into those situations and they have found deep rest in the midst of those real fears. In the year of fear, 2020, where so much has happened and so much has gone off the rails, it is good for Christian people to struggle with the nuts and bolts of our faith by re-examining its claims and see if those claims actually can withstand our re-examination. So is hope in God really legitimate in these days we are living? Or is this just a game that we're playing? It's a nice game. It's a fun game. It's kind of a pristine game, but is this a game or is hope in God really legitimate? Is God actually God with us, Emmanuel? Does he genuinely care what happens to you in the details of your life or what happens to those you love? Or does it just make us feel better to think he cares? These are good questions to ask. These are good questions to set on top of our faith to see if our faith can hold those questions. Is God really good? Think about the fears of life, sickness, loss, death, the unknown, loneliness, isolation, rejection. Hope, hope can't only mean, oh, life is going to get better because sometimes it doesn't. Hope can't only mean, well, circumstances will surely improve because sometimes they don't. This life can be hard. Pain is real. The world is cursed. Sin has dreadful consequences. So fear in that sense makes sense. It's understandable. It's even warranted. And hope can be so elusive as we all know, no matter how strong one's faith is. But this Advent encounter the shepherds experienced sets forth a tried and true paradigm for dealing with fear. It points to the possibility of hope-filled rest in the midst of the fear. Deep soul rest, even on the verge of fear. Peace, it is sometimes called. Calm in the face of fear. A reframed perspective in the midst of challenging circumstances. An anxious heart that's being pushed and pulled by all of these overcrowded thoughts that resets toward God and peace comes. And how does all this happen? Why can this happen? Here's why. Because God is present. Emmanuel. God with you. And God is powerful. His glory lit up the darkness.
And God is good. And he is always up to something good in our lives and in this world. God is up to something good in the midst of all of this crazy nine-month saga we've been in. God is up to something good as you look out on the horizon of your life and see something ominous or unknown. A wonderful Christ follower and writer who is now with Jesus, Henry Nouwen, wrote these words. And you can find this in your app if you want to follow along. It's a lengthy quote, but it's worth mulling over as it relates to the topic we're talking about today. He writes, The truly good news is that God is not a distant God, a God to be feared and avoided, a God of revenge, but a God who is moved by our pains and participates in the fullness of the human struggle. God is a compassionate God. This means, first of all, that God is a God who has chosen to be God with us. As soon as we call God, God with us, we enter into a new relationship of intimacy with him. By calling God Emmanuel, we recognize God's commitment to live in solidarity with us, to share our joys and pains, to defend and protect us, and to suffer all of life with us. The God with us is a close God, a God whom we call our refuge, our stronghold, our wisdom, and even more intimately, our helper, our shepherd, our love. We will never really know God as a compassionate God if we do not understand with our heart and mind that the word became flesh and lived among us. Advent is the season when we make an intentional choice to focus, to ponder, to reflect, and to find comfort in the staggering truth that Emmanuel, God with us, means that we never face disappointment discouragement, or pain alone. My favorite character in C.S. Lewis's series of books called The Chronicle of Narnia is the courageous little mouse named Reepicheep. Now, I don't like mice. I don't like little critters. I don't like rats. I can barely tolerate um, the uh, chipmunks, those things that run across the ground. Little Birds that dart in front of me, hummingbirds. Julie's always going, oh, look at the hummingbird, and it's darting in front of me, and I'm scared of it. I don't like little things that bounce around in front of me. I startle easily. Stop laughing, Cheryl. But I love this little mouse, Reepicheep. And the reason I love him is because he's so courageous. He's so strong. He's loyal to King Aslan. I believe C.S. Lewis describes him as when he stands on his hind legs, he's about two feet tall. But he's loyal to King Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure in all of these books. And near the end of one of the books, it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Reap a cheap, little mouse, has a decision to make about whether he's going to continue to live his life and just do his thing or start sailing for Aslan's country beyond the sea. This little guy is a picture of hope 
and confidence in God. He's a picture of, because Aslan is real, I will not fear. Even in the face of immense and life-threatening challenges. This final journey across the raging sea that this little two-foot mouse is about to take to find Aslan's country is a risky journey. And he might not make it. And he knows he might not make it. But he enters the uncertainty with hope that no matter what, whether he makes it or not, all will be well and Aslan somehow will take care of him. So in one beautiful passage, when Reepicheep makes clear his intentions, his intention to find Aslan's country, and he's about to depart on his journey, little Reepicheep says these words, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader, the boat. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. I'd like to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. I just have one question for you, and then I'm going to read a passage. And the question is this, what fear has you? What fear has you? <clears throat> Jordan, you can come up here. But as you sit and think about that, what fear, you name it, you set it out before God. I imagine most of us can come up with one fairly quickly. It has you. It's pushing you around. It's occupying your thoughts. It's got a hold of your heart. It's the narrative that you're living in. Hear these words from Psalm 46. It's just a restatement of what happened in this Advent story. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease 
to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.